Today's reading is from Lamentations 5, verse 1 to 22. Remember, Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become fatherless, our mothers are widows. We must buy the water we drink, our wood can only be had at a price. Those who pursue us are at our heels. We are weary and find no rest. We submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. Our ancestors sinned and are no more, and we bear their punishment. Slaves rule over us, and there is no one to free us from their hands. We get bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the desert. Our skin is as hot as an oven, feverish from hunger. Women have been violated in Zion and virgins in the town of Judah. Princes have been hung up by their hands. Elders are shown no respect. Young men toil at the millstones. Boys stagger under loads of wood. The elders are gone from the city gate. The young men have stopped their music. Joy is gone from our hearts. Our dancing has turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our hearts are faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim from Mount Zion, which lies desolate with jackals prowling over it. You, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us for so long? Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. Well, folks, it's official. I have a 16-year-old daughter. And of course, that's the kind of thing that you celebrate. And so a little uh, before her birthday arrived, uh, we, and by we, I primarily mean Melissa, but I'm going to include myself in it, um, threw a party. And so we told her that we were sending her out for dinner with a few of her friends, so they got a little dressed up. And as they were waiting in the front hallway of our house, um, Melissa said, okay, Sophie, your ride's here. And she's like, what are you talking about? And she turns around, and we had this like big stretch limo waiting outside for her. And she's like, ah, and she freaked out. And then the limo drove around the city and picked up all of like her friends and uh, drove around the city for a couple of hours. It was a lot of fun. Actually, the grandmothers of one of the girls who was in the limo was, happened to be driving by and snapped a picture of Sophie and one of the girls like out the roof of the limo. It's like minus 25 out. It's like ridiculous. And then there was a party, and then there was karaoke and all of the rest of it. Um, that was a few days before her birthday. Her actual birthday had a little bit different kind of sense of excitement. I took her to the drive test center. Oh, that's right. That's right. I took my daughter to the drive test center. And uh, she nervously kind of went through this, uh, writing this exam, and came out, you know, all smiles with her license. And it was very exciting. And uh, we went driving that night. So um, she survived. I survived. It's all good. But while we were in the drive test office, so I'm sitting there, and she goes in, and she was nervous. And of course, like, there's a lot of people in a similar situation. And as I'm waiting in the chair kind of patiently uh, as she's writing this test, this other girl comes out from behind like the wall. She comes out and she, she takes about five steps and she just bursts out in tears. Bursts out in tears. And she can just barely, it's everything she can do to make her way to her chair and she collapses into this chair and just 
face in her hands, weeping and weeping. And her poor mother is sitting across the, the chair from her, and she's kind of trying to console her and, and trying to just, you know, anything, just being quiet and, and being patient and present with her. And uh, as they stood up, she just cried for like two minutes just to, until she could finally stand up and muster the energy to leave. And, and as they're leaving, I, I just made eye contact with the mom. I'm like, I'm with you. I was like doing everything I could to like support her with my eyes. So right there in the drive test office, a little snapshot of life with its highs and its lows. The most exciting kind of moment for a 16-year-old girl and the most devastating and embarrassing moment for another 16-year-old girl. With this morning's reading, we continue our series looking at how we are supposed to pray when, as we just heard, the joy is gone from our hearts, when our dancing has turned to mourning. For those who weren't here last week, we introduced this book of Lamentations, which is a part of the Bible we don't go to very often. The book of Lamentations was written following Israel's exile to Babylon in the 6th century BC. Everything that this nation had known was taken away from them. And this letter, this, these words, these poems, this song was written as a response to what the people were feeling. Not only Lamentations, but actually about a third of the Psalms in the Old Testament were written around themes of sadness and loss and grief. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann writes, the Old Testament experience of faith is having stuff taken away from us. But because we have neglected the lament pieces, because we, we haven't gone into these psalms and we haven't spent time in lamentations, we're ill-equipped for the losses that we're experiencing. Well, this morning we're going to explore the experience of feeling forgotten by God through some of these neglected parts of the Bible. Have you ever been forgotten by someone? Have you ever been forgotten? Maybe some traumatic experience from your childhood or, or adolescence where you were left sitting on a curb waiting for someone to come. Has that ever happened? So uh, as has been mentioned a couple of times already, we have the spaghetti lunch going on today. Uh, so we're not going to have our usual discussion time. But maybe this would be a good thing to share with the people around your spaghetti table, all right? You can tell the story of the time when you were forgotten. When I was thinking about this, the, the classic scene from Home Alone came to my mind where they're in the rental van and uh, Kevin's mom is, is sitting here talking about what a bad mom she feels like, and John Candy's character, Gus Polinski, the polka king of the Midwest, you know, he's talking about what a scum all the rest of these guys in the van are, and she says, she asks him the question, but have you ever gone on vacation and left your child at home? No, no, he responds, but I did leave one at a funeral parlor once. Yeah, it was awful. The wife was distraught, and we left the little tyke there in the funeral parlor all day, all day. You know, we went back at night, and apparently he'd been alone all day with the corpse. He was okay, though. After two, three weeks, he came around, started talking again. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. So, I mean, hopefully no one has experienced that kind of being forgotten. Maybe you weren't physically forgotten somewhere, but maybe someone forgot your birthday. Or maybe you were left off of an email thread or a party invitation, and maybe you've even reached out to find out, was this accidental or on purpose? And the answer is always accidental, right? That's the answer you always get. But if you leave someone off the invitation, you know it's always on purpose. We've all experienced being forgotten. We always, we've all experienced, like, that. Does, does someone even remember me? Do they remember me at all? Even the slightest experience of neglect can send our self-esteem plummeting. But the experience of feeling forgotten by God, that's no slight neglect. Lamentations 5, 19 to 20, you, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures for generation to generation. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? 
Well, one of the Psalms that we could turn to is Psalm 13. It begins this way, David writing, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? How long? It's not just a matter of being forgotten, but how long is this forgetting going to go on? How long is this absence of God going to continue? Now keep in mind the people that we've heard from so far. Jeremiah, a prophet, who has a book named after him in the Bible. David, a king. These are people who've experienced the absence of God in their lives, God's silence, and yet they're calling out. Eugene Peterson says, the story in which God does his saving work arises among a people whose primary experience of God is his absence. And Jeremiah and David aren't alone. Job, I mean, we could spend all morning talking about how neglected and forgotten Job felt. Though I cry violence, I get no response, he says. Though I call for help, there's no justice. Or the sons of Korah in Psalm 44. Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? Now, the advent of smartphones only makes God's apparent lack of a response all the worse because we're used to getting instant responses. And if we don't, we have a word for that. It's called being R-bombed. It's when someone has read a message and you get a little tick that they have read that message, but they don't respond to you. And you know, you feel like, they have not responded. It has been two minutes. What is the wrong with this person? It's been 30 minutes they haven't responded to me. And we feel offended. One author that I was reading recently talked about, he was reflecting on this thought, and he has this, came to this realization that the expectation of an answer runs so deep that it is presumably fundamentally human, the most characteristic trait of our nature, he suggests. We expect a response. And so when we don't receive an answer from God, we become restless or worse. In the same way we can conjure up all kinds of reasons that a friend hasn't responded to our iMessage, we can assume that we understand what God's silence means. We come up with all kinds of reasons. Well, why haven't they responded? What could possibly be going on? Well, listen, just from the few short passages that I've read so far, here are some of the reasons that people assume that God has not responded to them. He's forgotten us. He's sleeping. He's hiding. He has forsaken us. He has rejected us. And this is just like a small little sampling here. We come up with all these reasons. Why do I not hear anything from God? Why does God not respond to me? These reasons are more. And then there's the one ultimate relationship-threatening reason for a lack of response that our biblical ancestors could not have imagined. And that would be to think that God is simply not there. Certainly neither Jeremiah nor Job nor David would have thought that the reason God's not responding is that he's not even there at all. But we have to wrestle with this when there's all kinds of voices around us saying, well, that's maybe the reason you're not hearing anything. Now, last week I shared openly about how over the past year I've been growing in my understanding of the struggles of anxiety and grief through my own lived experiences. Because I think it's important for us to be able to talk openly about the experiences that we have. But one thing I have not felt, and I say this with a measure of fear and trembling, is God's absence. And I don't say this to toot my horn. I, I say this because I want to be honest, that I am talking about a theme this morning 
that I can't 100% identify with, but also to, to acknowledge that uh, and remind us that a feeling of God's absence, that, that God is nowhere to be found, is actually a common part of the Christian journey. It's not something that is reserved for just people on the outskirts, as we've already read here. In fact, not only the biblical authors, but down on through the years, and perhaps the, the most well-known author speaking about this absence of God's presence would be St. John of the Cross, a medieval mystic, writing about uh, the dark night of the soul. And you may have heard this language about a dark night of the soul, and sometimes people use it a little too easily. You know, they go through, they have a rough day, and they, or a rough week, or a rough month, and think, oh, this is the dark night of the soul. But what St. John of the Cross was writing about was something much greater than this. It was an absolute sense of just spiritual abandonment, of total isolation, that there is just, that God is no longer present in my life at all. I want to read just a little section that he talks about this, and he talks about what is, what we can think about when we're in this moment where God seems to have forgotten us or rejected us or forsaken us, where he seems to be sleeping and unresponsive. He writes, although this happy night brings darkness to the spirit. He says happy night because he understands that this dark night of the soul is actually a good thing in the long run. Although this happy night brings darkness to the spirit, it does so only to give it light in everything. And although it humbles it and makes it miserable, it does so only to exalt it and to raise it up. And although it impoverishes it and empties it of all natural affection and attachment, it does so only that it may enable it to stretch forward divinely and thus to have fruition and experience of all things, both above and below. So even when the person who is pursuing God finds themselves in a place of total absence, as if God is completely forgotten, he's like, this could actually be a good thing because in those times and in those seasons, that could be the time where God is also preparing you for a greater union with himself. God's people have a long history of finding hope in hopeless situations, from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land, from hanging on a cross to walking out of an empty tomb. Eugene Peterson continues, a sense of the absence of God is part of the story. It is neither exceptional nor preventable nor a judgment on the way we are living our lives. Whether the experience of absence is measured in weeks, months, or years, for most of it, it doesn't fit into what is normal in our understanding of salvation. But it is normal. And this is an important thing that I want us all to get this morning. It is a normal part of the Christian experience. Normal. But not to be accepted passively. Not without at least a bit of a fight. So this past week was a little wild on the weather front, you'll admit, right? A little crazy, a, little, a lot of ice. School closed one day. The next day, buses closed, so I was driving the kids into school in the morning. And I was at uh, the, the intersection. I was on Albert Street, going to turn left, and the left-hand turn ran on to Columbia. And at the last second, right as the light was about to change, the student ran across the, the crosswalk in front of me, and it was slippy, so I was like, I'm just going to make sure she gets to the other side, and then I was like, okay, she's there, and then I take a look around the intersection, all right, ready to go, and then I hear this loud horn, and I was like, oh my gosh, there must be like a fire engine or something about to come through the intersection, and so I'm looking around, and then I, I see this vehicle blast by me on the left side, and I realized this was not a fire engine or anything else, it was an angry driver behind me in a big black Jeep, 
and he pulled out from behind me, apparently I was waiting too long, and decided to turn left in front of me in the intersection. And then what happened next is what always happens. I turned left safely and ended up parked right beside him at the red light, which was 100 yards away, of course. So the other thing that, you have, that always happens in that situation is you have to look into the vehicle and see what kind of a person could do this crazy thing, turning left around a person in an intersection. So I look over uh, at this person and, well, let's just say my window was rolled up because it was like minus 20 degrees, but his was not. And uh, while I didn't hear the words he was saying, I can imagine what they were based on the look, <laughs> the look on his face. All right, that's not far from the truth. That's not far from the truth. My kids were there. They can tell you. So he's yelling at me. And anyway, some things are just not worth fighting for. That is not worth fighting over. But some are. Some things are worth fighting for. Frederick Buechner writes, the absence of God is not just an idea to conjure with, an emptiness to try to furnish like a house with chairs and a sofa, heat and light to make it livable. The absence of God is just that which is not livable. We've got to fight for this one. He said, don't just accept the absence of God, as this is just the way things are going to be, there needs to be a fight. And so I want to go back to Psalm 13 for a second. This is the one that David begins, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Well, he continues on in verse 3, look on me and answer, O Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. As deep as David's experience of God's absence was, he wasn't about to let that be the end of the story. He would continue to pursue God because of who he knew God was. And so he prayed to the God who he believed to turn his face away. Now, this is another psalm I want to camp out on for a little bit. If you have a Bible with you, you could open it to Psalm 42 because we're going to kind of walk through this one a little bit. Psalm 42 is written by the sons of Korah. They're like one direction of the Old Testament. They wrote a bunch of Psalms. Someone thought that was really funny. So the sons of Korah, they write a number of these Psalms, and they wrote Psalm 42. Uh, so they describe their longing for God, and we hear the internal battle taking place within, a battle that might resonate with our own struggle. Psalm 42 begins this way, words that are probably familiar to many of you. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. There is something about the way that God has created us that makes us long for him, that we just, we want to find him, we want to seek after him, that it's like we need water and we're thirsty, and so we pant like a deer looking for a stream. But the psalm continues. We'll start at verse 2, second part of verse 2. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food, day and night. While men say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go out with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. There's an interesting observation here, I think. 
He sits here and realizes that he's thirsty for God. He's longing for God. And yet God doesn't appear to be showing up in his circumstances. People around him are mocking him. And he says, okay, I'm going I'm to bring my memory back. I'm going to remember the times when I knew God's presence in my life. And he specifically mentions the gathering with the people. Gathering together to worship. The worship community creates a space to meet with God. Eugene Peterson says the church at its simplest and most obvious is a protected place. God speaks and acts whenever and wherever he wills. But church is at least this, a congenial place and time to cultivate the presence of God. And this is what the sons of Korah remember. They're like, I remember the time when I was close. I remember when God showed himself. I remember those times gathering with the community and singing God's praise. When we gather here together, we remind each other and we help each other to see the world as it truly is, a world that is saturated with the presence of God. By remembering the heights of the past, the author of Psalm 42 stirs up hope that he will get there again. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you. Now that's a really interesting therefore. You've got to pay attention to this for a second. Because my soul is downcast, I will turn to God. That seems like the opposite of what we do. We tend to think when, when God seems absent, when God seems to have forgotten us, we walk away. But it's like, no, because I am downcast, because I'm overwhelmed with the sense of God's absence, I'm going to remember him. I'm going to reflect on his goodness in my life. How many times do we allow the calamities of life to drive us away from God? And it can be easy to say, well, where is he in this? Rowan Williams says, the deepest problem in prayer is often not the absence of God, but the absence of me. I'm not actually there. My mind is everywhere. We're so consumed with solving the problem or with the anger that comes with the issue or with the feelings of rejection or loss that we're in the middle of that we're actually maybe not really involved in prayer at all. We're not engaged with God in that moment. And yet Psalm 42 continues, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And this might be the best example of how we are to pray when we feel that God has forgotten us. Acknowledging in one and the same breath that God is our rock and that we feel abandoned by him. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Melissa mentioned earlier in the service this idea of when the emotions and the, and the feelings and the thoughts, they're not in alignment. We need to dig down to that deep place, that soul, and we need to stir it up. All right, soul, it's time for you to connect with God. It's time for you to stop wallowing here. It's time for you to connect with your creator again. Carlo Corretto writes that prayer is meaningful because in your presence, another is present. Another mouth corresponds to your mouth, another ear to your ear. This trust that we're not just speaking to the void, but we're speaking to a God who listens. And now, one final example from Scripture of someone who experienced the absence of God and yet continued on in his pursuit of a response. It was on a Friday at the ninth hour, we're told about three in the afternoon, at the tail end of a late night that bled into a long day filled with betrayal, abandonment, false accusations, humiliation, physical torture, cruel mockery, and eventually his crucifixion. In Matthew 27, we read that from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, 
Lama Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Both Matthew and Mark record Jesus as saying these words from the cross, but they're not his words to begin with. They were actually David's words. Psalm 22 begins this way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and I'm not silent. Now, theologians have struggled for years to wrap their heads around what it means for us to say that Jesus was abandoned by God, that there was in this moment somehow a turning away. Frederick Buechner reminds us the story of Jesus is full of darkness as well as it is of light. It is a story that hides more than it reveals. It is the story of a mystery we must never assume that we understand and that comes to us breathless and broken with unspeakable beauty at the heart of it. But for a Jew to quote the first verse of a psalm would have been to reference the psalm in its entirety. So as Jesus cried out those words of anguish, it's as if he was crying out the entire psalm, penned all of those centuries earlier by his ancestor, King David. The psalm that continues, Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. From the cross, in the midst of his death, in the midst of this sense that God had somehow forsaken him, he calls to mind the long history of God's faithfulness. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. That's what David wrote. And Matthew records the response of those around Jesus. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. And back to the psalm that would have been on Jesus' mind and perhaps even on his lips. Verse 11 and 16 to 19. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O oh Lord, be not far off. Oh, my strength, come quickly to help me. As all of these things are fulfilled on the hill called Golgotha, Jesus, perhaps without enough breath to complete the psalm, holds fast in hope. A psalm that he would have known very well continues. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. What began as an accusation of abandonment climaxes in a shout, of praise to God, the experience of God's people down on through history. 
And so our lamentation this morning begins, remember, Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. And the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 come to mind. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We want God to remember us in our suffering. And God wants us to remember his. Not to undermine our experience, but as a reminder that he has been with us through it all. I'm going to invite those who are serving communion to come forward. And the band is going to lead us. It's a, they're going to lead a new song as we come forward to receive the elements. I'll invite you to, to come, kind of starting at the front and moving to the back. And you can take the bread and the cup and bring it back to your seat with you. They're going to sing a song, and one of the lines says, Here in the midst of my lament, I have faith. Yes, I still believe that you love me. And so with that kind of struggling faith, with the kind of faith that says, You're my rock, why have you forgotten me? I invite you to come. Once everyone has come forward and returned to their seats, I'll come back and we'll share the elements of remembrance together. Lord, we give thanks. We give thanks that you were willing to be in that place for us. And that anything that we experience, any emptiness, any abandonment, any pain that we experience, we know that you can identify because you were willing to lay your life down for us. The cup that we hold symbolizes the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sin, a new covenant. Let's drink together in remembrance. Lord, we want to cry out to you and ask you to remember us in our suffering. But this morning we remember you and yours, and we remember that you were willing to go all the way to death and beyond the grave for us. And so with thanksgiving, we invite you to do as the lyrics of this song have said, in our belief, help us in our unbelief. When it's dark, remind us that it's still light. When you seem absent, remind us of your presence with us. I invite you to stand. We're going to sing the song that we were just introduced to as a closing this morning. So I invite you to stand and, and sing these songs with, with as much hope as you're able to muster this morning. With faith that even when God seems absent, even when we feel forgotten, that he is not absent and we have not.
却。